say I am um, asexual or I'm kinky, then actually it's no it's no risk for me walking down the street. You know, I don't. It's no risk for me that I'm going to be exposed in some way or ever suffer any negative uh, repercussions for this. And yet. The idea, the identity of queerness, allows me to somehow claim that I'm part of the same group as as people who risk their lives, you know, and, and risk all kinds of stuff because of who they essentially are. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. David Swift is the author of A Left for Itself, uh, which we published at Zero Books back in the day. Um, he recently reached out to me. I think you're going to be writing for Sublation Magazine, perhaps a pamphlet mm -hmm. as well. Um, and um, you want to talk about something that has come up on the channel from time to time. Uh, I'll get comments from people who are complaining about what I do. And I always sort of brush it aside and uh, think of it as either these are comments or, or, or criticisms done in bad faith or that, are, that there's an underestimation of the working class. But what I was asked recently, it was like, just who am I making my little critical cuts video essays for? Because mm -hmm. like, not for normal people, the person said. You know, <laughs> and and um, I didn't come out of a graduate program. You know, I, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, but most of what I know about Marxism and and uh, critical theory, uh, all of it really is self-taught. Even when I was in university, I, I was not taught uh, left theory or critical theory in university. Um, and yet, still, I guess I talk like a graduate student. Or so. I, I, what we're going to be talking about today, David wants to talk about how you want to talk about how the left is um, that we're poor dressers. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't our hygiene is questionable and and we're elitists uh, who don't know how to talk to regular people so th 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 those are the two topics <laughs> you can go yeah, ahead. that's a kind of ballpark yeah fair enough yeah. yeah so um why don't we start with the aesthetics of the left because i think it actually ranges um from like being you know just sort of sloppy like slavoj zizek in a t-shirt and jeans or something <laughs> Um, all the way over to being maybe very mod or fashionable and maybe a little odd, not like fashionable, like wearing designer clothes, but like mm -hmm. odd ensembles yeah. or, or weird looks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like a sort of a designer hipsterism almost. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's it. obviously the aesthetics themselves are less important than the reasons that might drive it or motivate. It, right. So, mm -hmm. Uh, the example I use in, in this piece for Sublation magazine uh, is uh, I was at a Palestinian wedding in, in northern Israel, I think May or June of last year. And it struck me that apart from the fact that there's a lot less alcohol than there would be you know, at a Liverpool wedding where I'm from in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, 
the aesthetics of the, the, the young people there was was quite a sort of global look, if you know what I mean. So so the guys were all like well built gym heads, you know, short cropped hair. Looks sort of like the people on uh, that show, uh, the Jersey Show, from about ten years ago, right? Maybe now in Jersey it looks evolved, perhaps. But you know, all muscular guys and tight shirts. The girls look just like sort of Kardashian Jenners, you know, big asses, big boobs, tight dresses, long extensions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, all know, this all sounds, uh, you know, like Eden in a way, right? But. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's it. So it's very interesting because you could be in so, and and, and definitely. Uh, I mean, take a look at, say, Instagram or social media and you'll notice that there's a uh, a sort of international aesthetic that's quite common across different cultures, right? Be you in uh, certain places in the US or Europe or, in this case, Palestine. And, you know, that's the aesthetic for, for certain people. And good for that. And, yeah, just the notable contrast with the sort of Israeli leftists that I associate with who definitely don't dress like that. You know, the guys are not muscular. The guys are not big gym heads. Um the girls don't, don't look there. And again, you know, fair play to them. So it's not about the aesthetics themselves, but it's about sort of what lies behind that. Um, and something I actually talk about in my most recent book, The Identity Myth, I don't know if you can see it off my shoulder there, <laughs> tacitly placed there. Um, there's, um, it's really important because so many of the groups that the left is ostensibly fighting for or representing uh, do care a lot about stuff like aesthetics and fashion uh, and makeup and, and how they look, right? Uh, many trans people, for example, obviously, uh, certainly trans women care a lot about makeup and fashion and whatnot. Um, there's a brilliant book that came out in the UK a couple of years ago called Safe, and it's an anthology, it's an edited collection of young black male British uh, writers. And there's this brilliant chapter in one of them, uh, so in that book written by one of the authors, where he talks about the lengths that, you know, young black British males go to to dress up and, you know, and, and make sure that they look good and make sure that, the, uh, you know, the clothes are clean and all the rest of it. And actually, it reminded me of a comment made by the Jamaican author Marlon James a few years ago, who was saying that, you know, what his white friends don't get, you know, his left wing, you know, hit, uh, uh, white friends don't get is that actually that he can't just go out, you know, at short notice. He needs to spend some time getting ready and getting dressed up and all the rest of it. And, you know... Again, the so-called white working class. Again, white working class people very often, when they can afford to, even if they can't necessarily afford to, care about stuff like this, you know, how they look and their appearance or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that clearly so many people on the left do not care about such things and maybe even sort of snobbishly look down on those who do. But it's about, you know, why, why shouldn't they? Right? You know, why, why is there this distinction? Why is, there, why is it so often, in fact, that people on on the modern left, in terms of say, professional activists, uh, the, the permanently online, etc., why is it that so consistently, you know, they don't look very you know, muscular and well built? Why, why, you know, are, are so many uh, people in that sort of environment not looking like say trans people or, or, or you know black people or, or the white working class, etc.? You know, why is there that distinction? Um, does that reflect, as we were sort of talking about before, you know, the different reasons why people get into left-wing activism nowadays, you know, compared to, say, in the past, right? Because things such as, you know, labor unions and uh, local government and sort of, uh, you know, grassroots, bottom-up activism is maybe declining compared to how it was in the past. Certainly, higher education is massively expanding, and that's increasingly a route into the left. So... You know, that's I think that's the issue that I want that, that I'm sort of talking about really, not the actual aesthetics themselves. 
All right, then. Um, why is it that, I mean, first of all, is it a cultural divide between the left and what I'll call normies? Or mm. is it a class divide? Because my um, observation anecdotally is that upper middle class, like PMC people who are not on the left, mm. dress well. Yeah. They may not, they may not um, yeah. all be look like they just came out of the gym. They may not try to emulate Kim Kardashian, mm -hmm. but they, they dress in a fashionable way. They wear finer clothes. They, they have an established look. There's a, there, I can tell if someone's what you would call posh just mm -hmm. by whether or not there's any like lint on them or if everything's <laughs> perfectly, <laughs> you know, That's it. um, put together. Yeah. So go ahead. To answer your question, definitely, that's it. It's about distinguishing themselves from the normies, right? And, and I think the, the, the reasons why so many people on the left might want to do this in the first place and then and then actually do it and execute it, a, a, you know, a, a cause for concern, I think. So firstly, yeah, it's this idea that increasingly uh, left-wing activists, particularly the mostly online left-wing activists, rather than, say, you know, people who are actually out there making a difference, um, they tend to. You know, I, I, look, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. That distinction. I. I. I uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Anyway, I mean, we'll talk a lot more about the on, like the parenting online later, perhaps. But you know, certainly they come from a very particular kind of background and, and strata, etc. And there's a reason why they get into what they're into and stuff. And then secondly, there's also this idea of well, you know, if the world rejects us and our political values, well, you know, fuck you, the world, right? We're going to turn our back on the world. And I think that's that's the idea. That's the something that is really at stake here, I think, because, you know, if you support, say, uh, I don't know, sort of incremental, slow and steady change, the kind of stuff that Joe Biden and congressional Democrats have been trying to do recently, um, then, okay, you might say, all right, no, okay, this isn't great, this isn't perfect, there's a lot to be desired here, but at least it's slowly going in the right direction. If you want to completely turn the world upside down, you know, you want open borders, you want to abolish the family, for example, right? Uh, in the UK, if you want to get rid of the monarchy, which is you know, bizarrely quite a, a, still quite a niche point, I thought when the old queen died, actually support for republicanism would go up. Doesn't seem to have uh, actually. But anyway, if you have the sort of more um, I don't know, let's say less popular, and at least in the short term less attainable objectives, and you are you know you're not it looks very hard to achieve them. Not only that, actually, but so often the very people who you think would support these kind of objectives seem especially in, you know, not interested in. Then you, know, you feel rejected by the world. You think, well, you know, if you're not going to, if the world rejects us and our beliefs, then we're just going to turn our backs on the world and we're going to concentrate on ourselves. And this will be represented in our language. This will be represented in our activities. So instead of trying to actually achieve anything or do anything helpful, we're just going to retreat to irony and sort of online attacks and memes memes uh, and yeah we'll, we'll have our own little language and our own um, dress codes and our own little mini culture and that's fine if you're a goth you know or a punk or a subculture if you're a skater or whatever that's fine you know to have your own sort of mini subculture where you dress a certain way and you have certain language and you share certain memes that only your in-group really understands but if your point is to try and actually affect change and help people then having this kind of you know mini sort of subculture which sort of it sort of turns its back on the outside and actually deliberately in the way it dresses in the, in the things that it says, tries to create a barrier between itself and the normies. Then I think that's a big problem. 
All right. So I want to see if I can uh, take a devil's advocate position just to defend myself here a little bit. Um, When it comes to uh, the first of all, there's a there, you know, there's activism that you can do in the world. But often enough, the activism is uh, constrained within a framework of the possible um, and and uh, uh, and the political and the and politics as it is known now. The the aim of a revolutionary politics is to create new conditions. First, I'll say that first. So, so this is me defending the online left and my own project. So, in order to do that, part of the project will be to think through and at least try to conceive of what a revolutionary politics would need to accomplish. And that, rather than immediately running out into the fray and being active within the framework of possibility now. So there's a, there's a, a, a function for a um, speculative expression that, can, that now is mostly online because most writing, most media is online. So what we're talking about is, you know, art and theory. That's where the that's the online left. Um, it's not because you know you you can also I publish books, print books, but even there the start with you know the online media because mm-hmm. that's where everybody is getting their media from. So that's what we're talking about is media and expression and intellectual work overall, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. the online left. Um, so the second thing is on the on the topic of aesthetics. I feel as though, I mean, look, I'm older. I come out of Gen X, um, the do-it-yourself aesthetic that was influenced by the punks and that had a strong left-wing current. I'm in the Pacific Northwest, so I, while I wasn't like uh, a major figure in any big subcultural movement, I was sort of influenced by them all in you know, the cafe culture, um, a kind of university culture, but maybe university culture for me of dropouts, uh, you know. Um, and... I feel as though in a, you know, uh, internationally uh, diverse uh, left, you're going to encounter a lot of different styles that are influenced by the, where they, where you come from. And also that you may find that whatever the counterculture is in a given area is what's going to absorb aspects of the left, that the, the revolutionary left will be attracted to countercultures or subcultures because precise because they want to get distance from what is conceived to be possible. Um, yeah. So that's, that's why well, I, I mean, I just say two things to this really. I mean, firstly, I think there's a distinction between online and in particular social media, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, there are lots of people whereby I might read their sort of, you know, a long form blog of like five, eight, five or 800 or a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might read their Substack, etc. And I think, okay, yeah, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything this person's saying, I, you know, I see their points. I think they're being quite persuasive here. I, I, I sort of like their attitude. You know, I empathize with them. I see where they come from. And then if I look at that same person's Twitter feed, I think, fucking hell, you know, I hate this person. What an asshole. <laughs> right, so right, that's, that's a distinction right there because the nature of social media, uh, you know, in so many different ways because of the sort of identity curation and projection that's involved, uh, because of the way it's so easy to misread people, indeed to deliberately misread people and act in bad faith, the way it's, you know, you have these sort of 
it corrals people into sort of people who, who agree with them and people post stuff that you know they know that people, their followers will agree and amplify and retweet etc that's a distinction right there because social media in particular rather than just online activity is what i'm really talking about because absolutely that is whereby i can think of certain british leftists there's a guy who definitely calls me calls him a long revolutionary socialist and again his whole online activity is just for him and his his wife and his friends and it's extremely annoying and whatever interesting or solid points he might make are uh, for me and i assume many other people sort of overridden by the fact that there's this sort of obnoxious sort of aesthetic and subculture around them really which is almost like this is our thing you know it's like a it's for us and it's, it's our thing and as i say if that's like a, an interesting band that you're into or a you know obscure italian fashion company or whatever like, that's great but when it's politics and when it's you know revolutionary socialism and meant to change the world who's it for or what's it for and again that, that's my second point there when we're talking about these revolutionary politics who is it for right who is it aimed at is there any indication that there's a big group of people out there that might want this you know who are you doing it for right is is because i completely take the point that you to achieve many things you need to change common sense you need to change you know uh, cultural hegemony and all the rest of it you need to create new conditions what is assumed to be possible absolutely brilliant you know fair enough um but but for whom and, and why <laughs> for what is there any indication that you know there are people out there that might actually want this different kind of world you know a large group of people anyway mm. you know is it just something that is just that you and your friends or people from a certain background you know from a certain milieu might want who are you doing this for what's the whole point is it just like an interesting intellectual project or you know, is it the kind of thing that is is meant to be popular one day? You know, what's the whole point of it? So, I mean, just interestingly mentioned before about Slavoj Žižek, which, again, great, he's a philosopher, so absolutely we would expect him to not give a damn about certain things and not want to appeal to a mass audience or whatever. That's his job, almost quite literally, you know, he's meant to Yeah, be. But, but, and, but in the case of Slavoj Žižek, you know, he's called the Elvis of cultural theory. And his his lectures are probably... Despite being in some ways difficult, and people often will say they don't understand what he's saying, and I think that's a com for a combination of re reasons. One, his Slovenian accent and speech <laughs> impediment. And then two, because he's speaking in a contradictory way. So he's not even necessarily using a lot of jargon, but he's saying things that require you to stop and think. Um, but nonetheless, despite all of that, I think he is one of the more successful uh leftist philosophers in in terms of reaching a mass audience and being able to be interesting and attractive to uh mm -hmm. an, an, a you know broader uh array of people um, yeah definitely. But, and so and, and a friend of mine niall that hi if you're watching this now he's actually got a, a, a t-shirt with uh, zizek's face on it you know so that's, he's definitely <laughs> right. got a, i have one of those i i have exactly, one of those you know, so he's as you say he's got a lot of cut through there absolutely mm -hmm. but the thing is though that's he's a philosopher and that's his whole thing is that you know is, is to consider what might be possible and all the rest of it mm. he's not claiming that he is at the vanguard of any particular kind of movement he's he's not even implicitly saying that he necessarily represents anyone other than himself right mm. but the people that i'm talking about their whole attitude is us this usually upper middle class overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly you know straight cisgender heteronormative people actually do either explicitly or implicitly say 
no, no, we are for black Americans, you know, we are for Palestinians, we are for trans people. That's who we're about, that's, that's from where we get our justification. That's who they are for whom we are doing this for, if that's grammatically correct. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's the difference between these kind of activists that I'm talking about and someone like Zizek, who, as you say, is is, is very successful at getting across, um, you know, sort of Marxist ideas to a broader non-philosophical audience like my friend Niall. So that's the distinction there, because I don't think Zizek thinks that he, or claims to necessarily speak for, you know, particularly any one of them. So I don't think he claims to be a representative of even the Slovenian working class or anything like that, you know, never mind African-Americans or trans people or whatever. So I think that's the distinction between, uh, say, philosophers, for example, and people who are meant to be or are ostensibly leading some kind of movement for actual, you know, to achieve political or social change. Oh, okay. So then there's a second uh, way that I'll try to defend um the the uh the the anti-corporate aesthetic of a kind of slacker left you know uh, a left that dresses in t-shirts and doesn't necessarily hit the gym uh, you know at all or as regularly as they should um and so on and that's to say that uh the culture that embraces kim Car the look of kim kardashian and uh a more uh, contemporary uh, uh, aesthetic around beauty for men and women is the culture um, that can most easily be absorbed by merchandising in corporate in the corporate world. Um, and also, it's interesting that the degree to which that that culture is coming out of uh, Black America, and I think these days it to the large degree is that that. Um, it does not in any way protect it against com commodification or or make it a, a, an aesthetic that is anything other than conservative. And I, I recently was in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. went to um, Brooklyn Museum of Art, and there was a uh, an exhibit, that, a short-term exhibit of a, a black artist um, whose name now escapes me. But he was a friend of Kanye West, and uh, uh, and I and I wanted to go in and see his work, and I, I went in, and it was there were rows and rows of Nike shoes, and Amber Crombie and Fitch luggage, mm -hmm. and it was all about um, what was called negritude in the exhibit. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the um, idea that Black Americans have a particular aesthetic based on being counter to. Uh, what I'll call instead of white culture, just the enlightenment ideal of progressive, uh, uh, pragmatic, or and or um, humanist uh, and universal culture. So, like there was a a, a a facsimile of a log cabin in in the exhibit, and all the boards were out of off kilter and. And it's like, you know, this is how black people like to live, where I guess every room has a draft and rain comes in through the roof. Yeah, I read actually a review of that exhibition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And so so that these two ideas of this very strong kind of warped identity politics and um, this aesthetic of a corporate beauty were not in opposition to each other. In this exhibit, oh, yeah. it was Nike shoes, designer clothes, designer luggage, 
all in the name of progressive uh, Black Lives Matter. Well, yeah, pro, pro, you know, quote unquote progressive, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Um, but this is so definitely, I mean, lots of sort of black academics and writers have been talking about this for a while, like Paul Gilroy, the uh, black British sociologist and philosopher for at least 30 years has been writing about this. Tony, the late Tony Morrison and Bell Hooks as well, you know, off the top mm -hmm. of my head said, you know, it's ironic actually that some of the people, black, white, all over the world who have, you know, suffered the most under capitalism are often the keenest to embrace, you know, uh, consumerism and money and profit and, and, and that kind of, you know, uh, go by your own bootstraps kind of attitude. Yeah, so that, you know, that's, that's a, a great point right there. So the point I'm making is not about aesthetics, right? There's nothing wrong with being a slacker or, and there's definitely nothing wrong with, you know, not dressing or looking like Kim Kardashian. I'm definitely not criticizing that. My point is though, if say the online left was a genuinely diverse, diffuse group, you'd expect to see at least some, you know, meathead Jersey Shore types there, right? You'd expect to see some, uh, you know, young black black guys who, who want to dress like Kanye West rather than the black guys who dress like sort of nerds and, you know, are all sort of postgraduates in college, whatever. You'd expect just to have an aesthetic diversity, which isn't there. That's one problem. The second problem is, okay, fine. Ex if you not accept then that you are distinct, not merely aesthetically, because that's quite superficial, but accept that you are sort of distinct in a, in a class sense, in an intellectual sense, and in a political sense from the people that you, you know, claim to sort of represent or be fighting for. Think about what implications that might have for your own politics, if any, maybe not. But also think about what implications that has for what you can achieve and what, you, what you're even trying to do and who it might be for. So something else which I think I mentioned in this article for Sublation is a distinction, not just, so let's move away from aesthetics now, in terms of sort of sensitivity, right? And, you know, uh, your attitude to physical violence, right? But, so, so many of us on the left, obviously, we are usually not very violent people, right? We are, we are not used to fighting or brawling, be it, you know, back in high school or outside a football match, you know, UK football matches, uh, in pubs or bars, etc. But we're not used to physical violence. We're not comfortable. We're not the kind of people who get involved with that kind of stuff. Again, big change from the past, right? In the 1930s, obviously, many on the left, through necessity, had to fight a lot, you know, Black Panthers, stuff like that uh, later on. Uh, so that's, again, a bit of a change in the history of the left. The problem there is, you know, you can't, it's a natural human instinct to assume that other people are like us, right? And so if you have a, a left which is almost entirely composed of sort of sensitive uh, intellectual types like ourselves, I'm, you know, intellectual inverted commas or that, but still, we tend to think, therefore, on the left, that most people actually are sensitive intellectual types, you know, uh, and of course, that's not the case, right? You know, humanity is incredibly diverse, and some people are very smart, some people are very stupid, and, and stupidity and intelligence are just, you know, uh, dispersed amongst the population pretty randomly. Some people actually quite like physical violence, you know, and they're used to it, etc. So it also it, it affects our thinking about the world and about what is possible and what other people might want, you know, from a social or political or economic system. If the sort of people who are, uh, you know, dominate left-wing activism are themselves quite unusual, not just aesthetically, because, you know, it's quite, it's quite superficial, but in terms of what they like to do in their spare time, in terms of their whole sort of attitude to the world, in terms of their sort of life of the mind, if you like, you know. Um, I mean, I just think about, like, crime and punishment, stuff like this, like, you know, I, can, I, I can't imagine uh, 
you know, unprovoked beating someone up, right? Uh, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you can't. Hopefully, maybe I mean, I mean, maybe provoked if you hate the person, you know. But I just can't imagine being the kind of people, person who assaults people, you know, or, or tortures or rapes or murders people. But obviously, there are lots of people like that in the world, and as we see from the fact that very often people from quite elite backgrounds do this, you know, there are lots of uh, rapists, you know, who went to expensive schools and who, you know, earn lots of money in finance or whatever, you know, there are lots of violent people from that background as well. There are plenty of people out there who are like that, right? And so hence, I would say that police abolitionism, as well as being a completely toxic slogan or policy is not a good idea, no matter how, how great our socioeconomic system, because there are always going to be violent people, even if you have, you know, a, a much more sort of a much fairer and more just economic system than we do have today. But because, you know, so many of us on the left are people like us, maybe, who are, you know, these sensitive types who can literally just can't imagine, like, being this kind of aggressive person, we sort of assume, well, are there really many people out there like that? Is anyone, you know, surely, you know, when people are like that, it's because of just, just because of poverty or it's just because of, I don't know, police provocation or whatever, you know. So so this is the thing as well, you know, it's not the aesthetics are, is are like the visual, sorry, the visible representation of it. But really what I'm trying to talk about here is the, the distinction in every other sense between so many of us who are on the left and, and involved in left-wing activism and, and the world at large. Well, listen, we should we should not dwell too long on the question of police abolition, but I want to address it and 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 I'm just going to speculate about this for a moment. Like I um, imagine that in the world of communism, let's say, and after the revolution, that we will still need to employ people in some way, in whatever force, that act the way that TV detectives do. <laughs> that, <laughs> that investigate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Murders, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. because. Um, because I imagine the kinds of crimes that will be left are the kinds of crimes that we love to watch now. A man murders his wife. Uh, a, 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 a jealous artist kills off his rival. You know, there's a chess tournament and the champion knows he's going to lose. And so he kills the opposition. That I think that kind of murder is like maybe built into the human condition where you have these animosities that arise and people act out and crazy things for your egotistical reasons based on their character. Um, but then there's the everyday kind of low-level crimes uh, that have to do with crimes of property and and crimes of that come out of, out of poverty. Uh, there's also political crimes, um, politically motivated uh, crimes that actually, uh, you know, aren't dealt with, with by the domestic police. Um, and I think those sorts of crimes will be diminished almost abolished after socialism so you know we just have to reframe the way we think about the future but we don't but then the real question is what do we do now because we're trying to organize the working class to change society if we believe the revol that the revolution will come from the working class which is debated you know but if we believe that then what do, how do we relate to the needs of the working class today? And the working class today have demonstrated over and over again that they would like security in their homes and they would like to live even in areas that are not um, affluent um, with 
with peace and uh, when they want the people who go around robbing other people or murdering other people to be locked up. Um, they don't want gangs in their area. You know, they don't want broken windows even. And I think these are understandable. Uh, and yeah, yeah. and again, that whole issue—that whole issue hits on exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because right. for those in the online left who push abolitionism, you, go, you know, who are you talking to? What is the purpose here? What are you trying to do? Are you genuinely trying to say, okay, just asking questions? You know, this is for the future. This is theoretical. This is speculation. Really, though, or you know, isn't it just like a sort of fan club? It's like fan fiction for. Harry Potter or something, you know, it's like online people who meet up and talk about this stuff and it's got no real basis in reality, you know, it's, it's like a circle jet kind of thing. And again, I think it touches on as the distinction between, like, I don't know, what is desirable uh, and what is possible, if that makes sense. So again, like, the, it's definitely not desirable for me that you know, people dressed like the Kardashians, for example. But I think it's, it's interesting that obviously a lot of people want to do that. And I think the left needs to sort of understand and accept that that is the case and think about maybe what the other implications might be for, for politics to it, you know, even if it's not necessarily desirable. So I don't even find it undesirable for women to dress like Kim Kardashian or for men to get buff and dress like uh, who, whoever that might be. No, no, no. So, sure, I, don't. I mean, what I think is undesirable is maybe if there's pressure on, especially like young girls and young men, you know, to look a certain way, right? So it's probably worse for young girls than for young men. Although I think even... Again, maybe, uh, you know, we're too old for this, perhaps. But I think definitely young teenage men nowadays, or boys, I think, with social media and Instagram and stuff, apparently there's a, bit, a big increase in body dysmorphia amongst them. But it's much worse amongst women. Yeah, so, okay, like, uh, like there's a, the, like, I feel like the left's emphasis on mental illness and and uh, lack of the embrace of undisciplined life, or the undisciplined life, or the the fear about body shaming i'm i'm a, i'm overweight i i am the least the last one to be able to, to talk about this really but um i uh I, I feel like maybe it's okay for people to say i i want my body to be in better shape than it is and i want to look better course, than yeah. i normally do and and uh you know even i want to be sexy you know yeah. that's fine the, yeah. the problem arises when i think teenagers um uh, only know how to create social bonds and intimacy um, in these hypersexualized ways, perhaps, or or through um, displays of beauty and and power, where there's not enough of connection um, between people to develop real friendships beyond that. Um, and mm. and I don't think that's at all limited to normies or working class people. I think we're, we have an alienated society. Um, but let's get back to the aesthetic question, because it, to me, this is, this is something I wrestle with as someone who wants to reach a mass audience for a variety of reasons, right? Not just out of the goodness of my heart or anything, but, you know, to, to sell more books, to get more views. Um, and also finds myself drawn to a kind of aesthetic, or sensibility, which is second nature to me now at 52, uh, and which I don't know, like I, I that I don't that I kind of want to pretend like I can communicate to anyone, even if they don't like it at, for in the first place. You know, I can figure figure out a way to explain why something is a value. Like I, I'm about to make a, a video about Laurie Anderson. Do you know who Laurie Anderson is? Probably not. He was a performance mm -hmm. artist in New York City 
in the 80s who had a top 40 hit and therefore became a kind of pop cultural phenomenon, but a low key okay. one. And um, she's very much of the uh, came out of the New York avant garde and had a moment. She married Lou Reed. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but later in like the late 90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. they were married. Um, and I feel like there's something in her work that is of use to people who want to think critically. And, but I don't, but it doesn't seem to me in any way working class. And I also wonder what, how the split between the countercultural and the working class arose. Like, weren't the countercultural movements working class movements often? Like the punk scene or even in Bohemia, weren't there, was, was it always petty bourgeois? What? I think, yeah, I think, well, it depends what you mean by counterculture, right? And it's not something I know enough about, but I think it's, because definitely I think if you go back to the 1950s, right, a lot of the sort of counterculture there, like greasers and stuff and like mods and rockers in the UK and stuff like that, very often, absolutely, they were working class movements, you know, it's, again, very much about fashion and how you dressed and all that kind of stuff and music and all these things that they took very seriously. I think maybe then hippies, were actually more of a sort of uh, university-based movement and were more middle class. And then again, punks in many ways a reaction against hippies, where again, I think generally more sort of working class uh, in their origin. Um, and yeah, I read a really interesting book recently. I think, I don't know, I think it was called, either it was called The Hard Hat Riots, or it was about the hard hat riots in the US, in, in New mm-hmm. York, and the reaction to them. I don't know, it was a really good book. And it was it was on exactly that topic. It's a shame I can't remember the, the book's name right now. But it was basically about that. It was about exactly that, uh, and it looked at the sort of the bridge or the I don't know the, the sort of when this sort of dichotomy opened up uh, in the sort of early seventies, late late sixties, but early seventies in particular, between the sort of countercultural movement and the anti uh, anti Vietnam War movement, etc. On the one hand, and then this inc- increasingly sort of small C conservative. Uh, you know, working class, the, the the sort of the drift in labor unions towards small C conservatism, etc. Really interesting book, which is on exactly that topic. And obviously, it's a massive shame that it happened. And in some ways, I, and this is like one of the laments of the book, actually. We should look up what this is called because it talks about exactly that. You know, it's a, a, another world could have been possible, actually, if, um, you know, the left, as it were, was able to keep together both. The sort of universe, you know, the sort of 68, you know, the Swiss want uh, or whatever, the 68ers, the students, the civil rights movements, the LGBT movements, etc. And was actually able to keep them in the same movement as organized labor, uh, which unfortunately they were not. And, you know, early, early 70s, that whole thing split apart. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's a hell of a shame. And I think now, actually, in the you know in in the US as well as the UK, actually, you know, there's all this now new unionism, if you like, you know, say McDonald's workers and Uber drivers and and DoorDash people and stuff like that, or delivery drivers in the UK. So I think that's interesting because maybe now with this sort of new unionism based on sort of you know the gig economy and stuff, uh, and obviously these, this new unionism is by nature much more diverse than say steel workers and and you know uh the teamsters etc in the 70s right it's obviously young and old college graduates college students uh obviously black white hispanic asian etc etc uh so maybe now actually uh and again given this sort of more diffuse nature of culture as well and the fact that we don't really have a counterculture as much because there's just so many cultures i think maybe nowadays it might be easier to harness 
or I don't know, to, to build a movement which is both based on sort of labor rights and sort of socioeconomic uh, redistributive objectives, but also actually harnesses sort of, you know, uh, fandom and, you know, uh, various kinds of cultures together. And again, I think a problem is if it's difficult to do this, if you sort of shut yourself away from these kinds of popular cultures, you know, if for whatever reason you sort of consider them a bit beneath you or, you know, you're the only, the language that you use when you talk about them is ridiculously uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, technical and abstract and obtuse. Again, this guy I referred to before, by the way, who calls himself this long revolutionary socialist and his whole online thing is just about him and his friends. He made this viral tweet last year. He was talking about a soccer game or something, football, uh, British football. And okay, he's a football fan. He supports uh, Southampton FC in the, in the UK. And just the, the, the language that he used in this, I mean, he was making, I forget the, what the point was, the point was solid enough, but just the, the you know, the, the language that he used was just so ridiculous in terms of the, the sort of abstraction of the language and, and his choice of words, that the tweet went completely viral, viral, and it got more attention than any blog post or anything this guy's ever done ever. You know, more working class people read that one tweet and, and, and pissed themselves laughing at it than anything else that guy has ever written before. What did he say? Do you remember what he said precisely? Oh, got, uh, I don't know. You know, it's the same as the name of his book. Do you, can I, do you think I can look it up now or will it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, I can edit. I'm, I'll be editing this. Let me have a look at this. Let me look this up. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I mean, because he tweets often about football and stuff. Um, maybe this is the irony is, you know, he is a genuine football fan, but the way he sort of wrote about it, just everyone just started laughing at him, and it just sort of goes. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find this. What's this guy's name? So he's called Tom Gann, and he edits something called the New Socialist magazine. Uh, it's online magazine in the UK. And yeah, I'm not. I'm. I don't think I'm going to be able to find this necessarily, um, because I don't know where it is. Because he unfortunately write, he writes quite a bit of, or he tweets quite a bit about football. But um, yeah, yeah, it was just this sort of. He, I think he was talking about the Euro to, uh, the Euro 2020. So it must have been two years ago now, in 2021. It was the delayed European uh, Nations Football Championship. Can't remember what the point was. This guy is has, is it Thomas J. Gunn, the misanthropic socialist Republican? Is that <laughs> uh, it? In, in I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think there's a J in there. I think it's just Tom underscore Gunn is his, his Twitter handle. Oh, uh, okay. But anyway, so unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to find it. But so he wrote this tweet, something to do with football, soccer. And again, you know, there's a point in there somewhere. But just the, the sort of language that he used was just so. I mean, this is a guy who uses the word elegant in its original meaning all the time. It's really weird. Like he always says, "Oh, such an elegant point," and he doesn't mean elegant as you know, sophisticated. Just an absolute asshole. And again, they got more attention or more traction online than anything he's ever heard before. And all kinds of just ordinary British people who obviously don't know anything about uh, online socials, or whatever, just ordinary fan of football fans, sports fans, just. You know, laughing at him basically and saying how ridiculous is this guy or a cop people thought it was a parody because they thought oh is this like a very clever pun of somebody you know deliberately writing taking the piss out of the online left no he was being completely genuine and so that's the problem there right you know it's like ah do you have to use this sort of language do you have to have this kind of aesthetic be it in your own physical appearance your own hobbies your own activities or literally the language that you use which is almost perfectly designed to you know to, to distance yourself 
not just from people in general, but from the very people that you're supposedly trying to reach out to and you're supposedly fighting on behalf of. Mm-hmm. I might have to. I'm gonna have to try and send, find this tweet afterwards, and I'll send it to you because. Yeah. Um, well, right. I, um, I definitely uh, feel like there's a conflict. I feel a little conflicted. On the one hand, like as an as a writer and a, as a, some sort of let's I'll dare say artist, um, I feel like I want to um, aim at. Uh, at elegance, you know, <laughs> and at um, uh, uh, originality, and at some sort of uh, even and, and even to develop something a bit new. I am att- in my in my past. I was attracted to, and still I'm attracted to, kind of dissident avant-garde kind of art, the surrealists, mm-hmm. the artists, um uh, in the 80s, um, you know, people would, would make uh, audio collages and uh, electronica and all that kind of mm-hmm. somewhat abstract and intellectualized art. Um, <laughs> but and I know that is never going to be exactly what uh, is the most popular art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I also feel as though it it works well with the aim of trying to inspire thinking beyond the immediate to create works that are aesthetically aligned with that. Um, uh, so balancing that with some humility, I think, and mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, tr- attempting to um, be as accessible as possible, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, is the only way I can overcome the problem in my in my own work. But it seems to me that you're talking about something larger than my work, and also larger than conscious aesthetic choices. And we've we're coming up at 45 minutes, and this is normally a, a point where what I would do is break and then put the second half of our conversation behind a paywall for the Patreon. Can mm-hmm. you stick around for another 45 minutes and? We could talk yeah, about sure. the way, uh-huh. like education, um, mm-hmm. and and class, uh, mm-hmm. is the the real basis for this. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. 